For as long as humans have been around, sports have been an important part of existence. And considering the fact that we came from hunter-gatherer societies, it's pretty clear as to why sports were created. After we transformed into agrarian societies, we had to do something with our primordial brain wiring. And thus, friendly competition was created. Welcome to the second episode of my two-part series on the Olympics. So what were the ancient Olympics exactly? Well, the Olympics were a five-day religious festival in honor of Zeus that occurred between August 6th and September 19th every Olympiad, which, contrary to popular belief, is not a high school science event, but a period of four years. Athletic events would occur, and on the third day, 100 cows would be sacrificed to Zeus and fed to the people, which was nice at the time since meat was quite rare and expensive. True to the name, the Olympics were held at Olympia near the western coast of the Peloponnese Peninsula. In 1200 BC, Zeus packed his bags and moved to Mount Olympus. It's stated that after he did so, he launched a thunderbolt into a sacred grove of olive trees. It was around this time that a city-state, Elis, was doing its conquesting thing nearby. They would be the guys in charge of the Olympics for most of its run. Before 572 BC, they struggled with the Pisitans for custody. The first recorded mention of the Olympics stems from 776 BC, when the solo event, a 192-meter foot race known as the Stade, was won by a cook named Corobus from Elis. However, experts commonly believe the Olympics have been around longer, speculated to have originated around the 10th or 9th century BC, as several bronze tripods dating back to the 9th century have been found in Olympia possible prizes, perhaps. Heck, there are even several legends as to how the Olympics were created. Zeus may have created it in celebration of beating Kronos. Pelops may have started them in honor of Oinomaus. Heracles, an ironic name, and Alcmene could have created them. Whatever their origin may be, we know that sports and competition were important to the Greeks, and they were around during the Minoan and Mycenaean civilizations. So, in a sense, the Olympics were destined to be created. In 724 BC, the Dialos race, approximately 400 meters, and the Dulacos race, 1,500 meters, question mark, 5,000 meters, were added to the Olympics. This was followed by the Pentathlon 5, foot race, long jump, discus, javelin, and wrestling in 708 BC, boxing in 688 BC, four-horse chariot racing, tethrippon, 680 BC, Kelles horse race in 648 BC, and the pancreation that same year. The pancreation was the crazy child produced by boxing and wrestling. People fought covered in oil, and the only rules were no biting or gouging. Oh, and speaking of strange rules, in boxing, there were no such things as time limits, points, or weight class. If two boxers were stuck to each other, they could do the climax system, where one dude would make a free punch, then the other guy would take his punch. Who went first was determined by the toss of a coin. Oh, and aiming for the stop, don't touch me there, this is my no-no square, was discourage. Not sure if this is still a rule since I don't watch boxing. During this time period, the Olympics were simple. The Eleans were horse breeders and a rural peoples. During the non-Olympic months, they used the stadium as a wheat field. 
The original stadium from 776 to 550 BC was basically a plot of land that used embankments. With that, Zeus's sacred olive tree was used for victory wreaths as well as race finish lines. Insert Mannerheim joke here. Even so, the Olympics were evidently very popular seeing as there were more than 100-500 wells found in this area dating to around this time. In fact, the Olympics were by far the most popular games in Greece, and even spawned some other Panhellenic games, like the Delphi, Isthmian, and Nemean games. Hell! Enic doesn't count, I swear. The Olympics delayed the creation of the Allied army because so many people cared more about a sporting event than, you know, some Persian invasion. Literally, the Olympics were so important to some city-states that they would give cash prizes for athletes, like Athenian statesman Solon's 500 drachma. For reference, one sheep cost a drachma. And the game's influence ranged beyond the sporting events themselves. Athletes, spectators, and all sorts of people would travel from all around Greece and even as far as France, Spain, Italy, Libya, Turkey, and Russia to attend by 600 BC. In its prime, around 50,000 people attended the games. That's about the size of 25 California high schools worth of sweaty children. And sure, that may not seem like much to us modern folk, but the Greek population never surpassed more than 4 million. Later in 520 BC, Hoplitodromos, racing in hoplite armor, was added. This was usually the last event of the games. Apony, two-mule chariot racing, was added in 500 BC, but dropped in 444 BC. Around this time, a third version of the stadium was created that was larger and more unfarm-like. This was a success, and viewership grew by 50%. In 408 BC, two-horse chariot racing, Sinorus, was added in. Later, a three-horse version would be added in 268 BC. Trumpet and herald competitions were added in 396 BC, where people played music to see whose sound could be carried the farthest, which honestly sounds like the only competition I could actually survive. During the final day, the winners of this contest would announce the victors at the prize-giving event. Although it was common courtesy to sacrifice to Zeus, there were exes greater than 70, different altars to sacrifice to different gods. Even after the Olympics, the Eleans made monthly sacrifices there. Later in 1780, a fourth version of the stadium was built because people liked chariot racing, and a century later, at the height of its popularity, a fifth stadium was built. However, the most interesting thing was that through it all, the stadium track remained 600 feet. The reasoning is unknown. However, it was believed that 600 feet was the Mount Hercules, I'm sorry, Heracles, got to get that Disney stuff out of my head, could run in a single breath. Along with that, a palestra and gym was built some time ago around 323 to 31 BC. The palestra had a large square inner courtyard made for wrestlers, boxers, long jumpers, and pink triationars. It had some nice old columns that surrounded it, along with a bathing system. And the gymnasium was a long rectangular area for throwers, javelin, and discus. Philosophers and teachers would stop by a ton to give the young people knowledge to go to call. Wait, that doesn't exist. 
Looking from a modern perspective, the Olympics were decently organized. To ensure that spectators and athletes were able to safely make it to Olympia, the city-states would have a one-month truce called an Ikichiria. Yeah, for some reason, none of these words are on Forvo. Like, usually it's like half and half, but like, for some reason, they're not there. Transitioning, meaning holding hands, which would later be extended to three months, allowing spectators to travel to and from city-states that would normally be at war. Along with that, no war was to happen at this time period, and it was illegal to carry arms into Ellis. It was also illegal to prevent athletes, spectators, or theorii, city ambassadors, from attending the event. And the strangest thing was that this truce held for the most part. Only one recorded incident occurred when a battle occurred at Olympia in 364 BC between the Eleans and the Arcadians for control of the site. Along with that, rules were pretty strict and set in stone. Athletes had to train for at least 10 months to attend and arrive in Olympia one month beforehand. Even so, only free, non-murdering, non-tempo-defiling male Greeks who respected the Olympic truce were allowed to attend. In rare occasions, city-states could be barred from attending if they defied the truce. <clears throat> Sparta, 420 BC. Well, to be fair, the Athenians... Shh, shh, shh. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Peloponnesian War, am I right, guys? The athletes could also face corporal punishment for false starts on the track, and if the rules were broken, they could be booted out and fined, or even flogged. Sounds like a lot of fun. In the case of the fine, if the guy didn't give monies, his city-state would have to do so or face being barred during the next games. The money would be used to build statues of Zeus called Zanes. Along with that, it was possible for judges, known as the Hellenodikai, to disqualify and fine athletes for infringing upon the rules. Although it was impossible to remove their decisions, if an athlete appealed successfully, a council of elders could fine the judge. Oh, and about the Hellenodikai, they were all native Eleans. They wore purple coats and had seats of honor in the stadium and had assistants called the Altai, which were the Po, as in police. During the earliest 49 Olympics, there was only one judge for all the events, but that later expanded into 12 judges. Also, the Hellenodikai position used to be inherited and for life, but eventually became an elected position. Another task the Hellenodikai were charged with was handing out prizes, which were usually olive branch crowns, victory wreaths cut from Zeus's sacred olive trees, champs would be seen as heroes, and were usually rode into town on four horse chariots. They would be given banquets and could even be exempted from tax or join the political elite. The victors would be recorded in the victors list and be remembered in statues and odes. Which leads me to the athletes themselves. Athletes were given assistance from either a professional trainer, gymnast, or a physical trainer, pyrotypes, knowledgeable in muscle building, dieting, and exercise amount. These athletes were rubbed down with oil and massaged by Aleptes, 
which sounds pretty sweet, but isn't really worth it considering the fact that to surrender in all games, an athlete would have to raise their index finger, but most of them died before they were ever able to do this, which is quite a shame because imagine training for 10 months for the biggest event of your life and then the fates are like yeah this one here with the weird haircut yeah we're gonna kill him just because of it snip the athletes also had to do the events naked and there are several theories as to why for one thing nudity allowed maneuverability one possible origin theory comes from or Sipos, or, or Ripos, whatever his name is, I'm probably pronouncing both very incorrectly, of Megara, who, while athyeeting himself across the track, lost his shorts in 720 BC. I have a hard time imagining how this would happen. Did, did they just, like, poof vanish, or, like, did they just fall down his legs or something, and then he kicked them off, or... Like, maybe, the maybe like, the Greeks, they had, like, different brand of shorts that, like, tied, like, uh, tied. Uh, I'm probably thinking too much about this. Moving on. Another theory is that the Greeks were introduced to this in the 8th century because it was a Spartan tradition. Oh, and another thing about nudity, it prevented women from participating in the games as either athletes or women. In the case of Peliperiras, she trained her son pay Cyrodos, and he won the race. Being the soccer mom she was, she started cheering too hard, which loosened her clothes, revealing that <gasps> she was a woman? She was given the death punishment, but escaped due to the fact that her family was full of Olympic winners. From that point on, trainers had to also be naked. Oh, and another bit of trivia about the original Olympics, there was no Olympic flame or Olympic torch relay in the original games. The flame came about during the 1928 Amsterdam Games, and the torch relay, although practiced in other ancient Greek games, first came into use at the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Along with that, the Olympic oath came to be in 1920. Back to the athlete stuff, because I'm not finished with that, and there are some pretty darn interesting ones. Category 1. Pankration. Theagenes of Thasos, born to a priest of Heracles, thought to be his descendant, won a boxing championship at one of the Olympics, later won the Pankration at the 476 BC Olympics, toured the Mediterranean, and won over 1,400 victory wreaths. Maybe. Legend has it that he got a big statue of himself erected by the people of Thasos, but this dude who was constantly made second place was salty and would go to the statue every day to whip it. One day, the statue just had enough and fell, crushing the dude. Arition of Figalia made opponent accept defeat before plopping dead himself. The dead man was still given a wreath, though. Sostratos of Skion, nickname Fingertips, would break opponent's fingers at the beginning of the match. Category 2. Wrestling. Milton of Croton, large dude, student of philosopher Pythagoras, good at wrestling, carried cow on back to sacrifice to Zeus and aided in all one day, could drink nine liters of red wine in a go, led Croton to battle with lineskin, crown, and club. 
at the olympics the dude won six rounds of wrestling one in the boys in 540 bc the rest in men's but lost at the age of 38 or 40 to 28 year old timathithios on his seventh the crowd carried milton on their shoulders with our good sport timasithios leading the cheers the dude also won seven times at the pythian games nine times at the Nemean games ten times at the isthmian games and much more milton tried to split open a tree once with his bare hands and ended up getting tangled in it and got eaten by wolves i don't know why he said that so happily papa hypsothenius and son Etoimocles of Sparta. The pair won 11 wrestling matches combined. Category 3. Boxing. Diagoras of Rhodes. Won 464 BC boxing event, said by Pindar to be 2.2 meters tall. Mother is said to have slept with a god, nicknamed Euthymachus, fair fighter, since he never ducked or dodged taking anything his opponent threw at him had three sons who shared five olympic wreaths after watching one of his sons win the boxing and the other win the pancration the boys gave him their wreaths and he was carried by the cheering crowd then some guy jinxed it by saying something like surely it doesn't get better than this doesn't it you may as well as die right now and he did just that Pythagoras of Samos had long hair, was prevented from competing in the boys' boxing section in 588 BC because he looked girly, won the men's competition instead. Way to show them. Melanchomus of Caria could defeat an opponent without getting hit or dealing a single blow. He was able to hold his hands up defensively and move about lightly for two days. His exhausted opponent would then surrender. Diosippos of Athens, famous for be beating fully equipped Macedonian soldier naked, oiled with only Heraclean club and victory wrath. Leonidas of Rhodes, said to have the speed of a god, won the staid Dialos and Hoplitodomos, all three of them, four games in a row, 164 to 152 BC was 36 at his final game. Astylos of Croton won the Stade and Dialos in 488 BC, then ran for Syracuse in the next two Olympics, winning both races. The people of Croton did not take it too kindly and demolished his statue and turned his house into a prison. Phanas of Pelene won the Stadion Dialos and Hoplitodromos in 521 BC. Hermogenes of Santhos, nicknamed the horse, won eight running events from 81 to 89 CE. Category 5 Chariot Racing. Kyniska of Sparta won the Tethrippon in 396 and 392 BC. Because chariot racing had a rule where the chariot owner would win the victory wreath and the racer would get a red woolen ribbon, Kyniska, daughter of King Archidamos, became the first female Olympic champion and was legally allowed to attend the Olympics because of this. 
This marked the start of women winning chariot competitions, resulting in 12 different women winning by the end of the games. Alcibiades of Athens, general and statesman, won three chariot races in 416 BC. Philip II of Macedon, you all probably know who he is, most generic summary, Alexander the Great's dad, won horse race in 356 BC, and then had chariot winning streak from 352 to 348 BC. Category 6, Trumpeting. Herodorus of Megara won 10 trumpeting contests from 328 to 292 BC. Category 7, Nero, because he really was playing at another level. Roman Emperor Nero won every event he went into at the 65 CE Games. Sounds like Kim Jong-un propaganda, if you ask me. Now, if you have decent math skills, you may have noticed that, wait, 65 doesn't align with the four-year Olympic cycle, which for some reason several other champions listed don't align as well. To that, I would say, your observation is quite correct. The Olympics were supposed to be held in 67 CE, but Nero changed it to the year 65 CE while he was on a tour of Greece, which was kind of rude because the Olympics, unlike fraternities and sororities, were a real and important part of Greek culture. Along with that, Nero added in artsy competitions including lyre playing, heraldic contests, acting, and singing. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. Nero, a non-Greek, decided to enter the Olympics. And if you're thinking that's the worst it gets, it's not. No, 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 no. Nero, who, mind you, was non-athletic and quite overweight, entered the Teth Ripon with ten horses attached to his chariot which 10 horses attached to one teensy chariot, you know there's bound to be some issues. Right after the race began, Nero lost control of his chariot during a turn and had a near-fatal accident. And if you guessed, even though he never finished the race, he still won, you'd be correct. Moving on to less enraging stuff. The spectators were pretty chill people. Before the coming of the games, heralds from Elis would spread the news across Greece, and they'd come in droves. Apart from not being a married woman, debatable as to whether that extended to all women, anyone could attend, even slaves and non-Greeks. Because there was no official housing until later, people would camp out and tour the sites. While the sports themselves were quite important to them, another reason they attended was to gather together with family and friends and meet new people. They would chat, eat, drink, and do business. Vendors, craftspeople, musicians, poets, and philosophers would hang out there, doing whatever they were doing. The Olympics were also the place to go if you wanted to make a name for yourself, advertise, find the right connections. Herodotus, father of history, would often stand on a temple porch and read his works to the crowd. Spectators would also interact with the games themselves, cheering for athletes they liked and showering the victors with flowers and laurel leaves. Oh, and about that woman law I mentioned earlier, the only exception was the priestess of Demeter, who was even given a seat at the event. There is large speculation as to why she was allowed to attend. Paul Christen, 
professor of ancient Greek history at Dartmouth on the Olympics website says, quote, Later versions of the stadium appear to have been built over what was a sanctuary for Demeter. So the priestess sat in the place where her sanctuary used to be. It probably didn't signify anything specific between Demeter and the Olympic Games, other than the fact they happened to build the stadium where her sanctuary had been. End quote. So that's the version I'll be going by. During the Roman period, the entire site had changed into a tourist attraction open year-round because it had cool art. A lot had changed then. Emperor Sulla moved the ADBC games to Rome. Skipping past the Nero stuff, Emperor Hadrian helped increase the popularity of the games during his reign. However, that was short-lived. Emperor Theodosios later called for the end of all pagan practices. The final Olympic Games was held in 393 CE, thus ending millennia of tradition, as well as this series. Thank you for tuning in, and have a lovely rest of your day. Get some sun, get some air, and yeah, I hope to see you guys all next episode, and I don't have anything else to say. Bye!